All right. Good morning, Salt City. It's fun to be back up on the stage this morning. I love to teach the Bible. I think the only thing I love more than teaching the Bible is to see emerging teachers in our church teach the Bible. And that's what's been happening the past several weeks, so it's been fun for me to sit under our young teachers' teaching. Um, But it's fun to be back up here this morning to teach the remainder of the book of Exodus. So we're going to be looking at the last five chapters of Exodus. And basically where we've been thus far in the book of Exodus is we've seen God do this amazing rescue, taking millions of people out of Egypt who'd been slaves for 400 years and bringing them out. And they're wandering through the wilderness and God makes a covenant with them and tells them that he's going to be their God and that they're going to be his people and that he's going to love them and he's going to be faithful to them and he's going to take care of them. But we see that their response to the covenant is to give lip service to it and say, yes, we'll uphold our end of the covenant. But then we see them act in complete wickedness and rebellion against God. And this is epitomized by the golden calf incident where Moses is up on the mountain receiving the covenant from God And meanwhile, the people of Israel are having a drunken orgy. And Moses comes down, and he's super mad at them. And then God brings his just wrath against their sin. And so we're left in this place in the book of Exodus, and we're wondering, how is God going to respond? Now, he's said that he's gracious and merciful, and he's also said that he doesn't leave sin and wickedness and rebellion unpunished. And here's what we have God doing. We have him restating his covenant by saying that the people of Israel are to go on with building the tabernacle. Now, this might not seem like a big deal to you, but let me illustrate kind of what's happened here. Imagine that you are engaged to be married. And let's say that the person that you're engaged to be married to and you decide to buy a piece of land and you get plans to build a house on that piece of land before you even get married. And then you get married and you find out soon after you're married, after you've made vows to one another, that your spouse is committing adultery against you. And There's a time of separation because you need a chance to catch your breath, but then you finally get back together and your spouse is sort of sitting on the edge of their seat like, is this marriage over? Did I ruin this? Did my rebellion end this amazing relationship? And you respond by taking out the house plans and putting them on the table and saying, where did you want the master bedroom again? There's so much significance to what would be happening in that moment. Yes, you're talking about plans, but in making plans, you are reaffirming a kind of radical love for that person. And that's what God is doing for Israel in this passage, and that's what he's doing for us. He's saying, even though you come into church this morning having not upheld your end of the deal, If you're anything like me, you've got things going through your conscience that you should have done this last week that you neglected to do. 
and things that you shouldn't have done this last week that you did. And you wonder, even though you're a Christian, you wonder, does God still love me? And God is saying, I'm as committed to you as I have ever been, and I will never be more committed to you than I am right now. I love you. And so it's sort of our move as a result of that. And God is calling us to respond to his faithfulness by believing that faithfulness to God on our part is the good life. So our response to grace is not to be, okay, sweet. Well, if I know that I can come back to church each week and be forgiven by God, that means I can live however I want. The response to this grace of God is for us to see his faithfulness and to understand his heart and to believe that when he commands us to do something, that is the best possible way for us to live. So he's inviting us in this passage to embrace the good life of following him and to forsake the idea that to live apart from him is where joy is found. So we're going to see three ingredients in faithfulness. The first one is the skill of faithfulness. So we're looking at Exodus 35, starting with verse 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. Okay, so here's what God has commanded the people of Israel to do. He's commanded them to build a sanctuary. There's design plans that both precede and follow this passage. And God is saying, I want it made exactly like this. And so what that requires is skilled labor. So we find that the first person in the Bible filled with the Spirit of God is not a pastor or a missionary. The first person filled with the Spirit of God is a construction worker. And so you imagine Bazalel is working in Egypt at some point, and he probably learned his skills and refined his skills working as a slave. Perhaps he made intricate designs for the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. And now he's out in the wilderness, and God is calling him to use his skill not to build things for a false king, but to build things for the one true king. And so I think we can get this idea in our minds as Christians that the Spirit of God is meant only for us to do what we would consider sacred tasks. So the Spirit of God 
would be at work in your life if you're going to go do evangelism or you're going to be a missionary, but your work as an engineer or as a teacher or as a lawyer has nothing to do with the kingdom of God, and so you certainly wouldn't need the Spirit of God to do those things. But I think what the Bible is teaching us here is that God uses our skills for his glory. And those things that we are gifted at and passionate to do are as much of a gift from him as the things that we would consider off the bat to be spiritual things. So we see that God has organized the world in such a way that he has given some people skills to do some things and some people skills to do other things. And so when it comes to a construction project for a tent that is going to be for the glory and honor of his name, God picks skilled laborers who are also able to teach other people the skills that they have in order to build what God has commanded. So God is amazing as a project manager and construction overseer. Have any of you ever overseen a construction project before? I have one time. It was my basement. I don't know that much about construction, but I knew one thing. I didn't know how to do the project. And so as I was thinking about who to ask to help me to do the project, I knew one thing. I need somebody to help me who's got skills. And so one of the particular things that I needed the most help with was with electrical work. And so what I didn't do is call one of my golfing buddies and say, hey, you want to help me with the electrical? Because I know that we would have ended up dead and none of the circuits would have worked. And so I found out that somebody in our church had some skill with electrical work and had them come over to the house and help me and show me how to do the work and also do the things that I would never be capable of doing. That just illustrates the reality that God is not dumber than me, right? When I want to get something done that requires skill, I know that I need to find a skilled worker. And God, in his grace and goodness to our church, has given each of us different skills to be used for his glory and for his honor in this community. So here's sort of the application of this point for all of us. It's to think about our secular life differently. It's to think about your Monday through Friday differently. And I want you to sort of recapture in your mind what you do for the majority of your day and to see that as the Lord's work. To believe that God has given you your mind and your hands and your life to glorify and honor him so that you don't think in order to serve God, I've got to volunteer in the kids ministry or I've got to help with tech set up and tear down or I've got to be on the welcome team. We do need your help to do all those things, by the way. But you can serve God in your job. And that that is just as spiritual as what I am doing right now. It's not like Drew, by preaching the Bible, is serving God and needs the Spirit of God, 
And me, by being an engineer, can do that on my own and then come to church and do a spiritual thing. No, the Spirit of God has been put in your life and God has given you all the skills and abilities you have for His glory and honor. And as you think about that, and as that starts to melt your heart and change your mind, what that will do is no matter what you do for your profession, it will give it incredible meaning. You won't have to jump from one thing to another looking to find a sense of purpose because your purpose does not come from what you do, but comes from God himself. And so we can believe that God has put us in the positions that we have, with the skills that we have, to do a job in a way that honors him. And other people will notice the difference. They will see that you don't cut corners. They will see that you do your job with integrity. They will see that you use your skills to glorify and honor God, and that you're not just doing it when your boss is watching, and they'll notice, and they might even ask you why, and you might even have the opportunity in that context to share the gospel. Because we all know that there could be this temptation in your workplace to sort of think of work as an avenue to share the gospel with people, but if you are not a great worker, then no one is going to want to listen to what you have to say. And your life will be discrediting to Jesus, and your words will be honoring to him, which they will then see you as a hypocrite. And so I think we need to recapture this idea that was sort of recaptured once before in the Protestant Reformation, that our skills are to be used to glorify and honor God. So there's skill and faithfulness, but we also see in this passage the heart of faithfulness. Look with me at verses 2 through 7 of chapter 36. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. So Moses had stood up in front of the people, and they had a building campaign. And he said, I want all of you who want to give to the building campaign to give. This is a guilt-free building campaign. If you don't want to give, you don't have to give. If you want to give, give. And the people of Israel responded by giving more than was needed. 
In fact, they would give some, and then they would come back the next morning and give more. A free will offering means they were doing it from the heart. They weren't compelled by some outside force or guilt trip. They were moved inside. And they kept coming and bringing more and more stuff. So what you have in the building of the sanctuary is you have people with skill who also had heart. In other words, they were willing to do it. But then you had people who had no skills, but who had a bunch of heart. And I think what we see in the passage is that if you're going to pick between the two, skill and heart, heart is the essential thing. Skill is a bonus. And the people of Israel had heart. Now, the question that I had is, how did that happen? These are the same people who, while God was making covenant with them, quickly ran the other way and did their own thing and, per, and participated in this massive drunken party. And just a short time later, there's this building campaign, and they are full participants in it. What happened? What changed? Here's what I think changed inside of them. They were participating in this drunken party, and God executed his judgment. And so, a very small percentage, but a significant number of people died. 3,000 people died. Millions of people lived. And they understood something very profound, something very significant. I deserved to die. And I was saved by the grace and the mercy of God. And God has been faithful to me. His heart is for me. He loves me. He wants what's best for me. And they're responding like any spouse who sees their loving heart of their husband or wife responds to them when they respond rightly. When they're loved, they don't take that love for granted. They respond with service and love back. In other words, the aha moment for them was not an aha moment of guilt and shame. It was one of grace. Something clicked for them. And so, they gave all that they had. Whether that was money or that was skill, they laid it at the feet of Moses and wanted it to be used for kingdom work. That's what happens in us even more when we understand the gospel of grace. See, we weren't just saved from a one-time kind of outbreak of God's wrath against a very specific sin. We've been saved by the blood of Jesus from eternal punishment from sin. We understand that the wages of our sin is death, and we come here each week, yes, rejoicing, but also trembling, because we understand that we're not any different than anyone out there who doesn't believe in Jesus at all. We believe that we deserve to be punished for our sins. And instead of being punished, God has not only withheld punishment from us, he also loves us as his kids. 
And so we're like, no way. And so when we give our money or we give our skills or we give our time or we give our talent to God, we don't think of it as like we're trying to pay off our debt. We think of it like we love Jesus and we want to serve him and we want to honor him. At least some of us do in my experience. You know, I remember my previous job, church in Iowa City, we also did a building campaign. And I remember there was a very prominent couple who had a lot of money. And we were anticipating, you know, before as a, as a church leader, you sort of anticipate what you think people are going to give, and you talk about it a little bit. And you sort of anticipate, like, based on how much money people make. And, and we remember sort of this building campaign happening, and it ended up that this person, who was probably making around $500,000 a year, ended up giving nothing at all. They were sort of in our pipeline for leadership. They had all the skill in the world. Great public speaker, leader, big home that they could host people in, and they gave nothing. All skill, no heart. And at the same time, there was a young man in the church who had just graduated from college. He had gotten married. He was going through a divorce. His wife just inexplicably left him. He's all alone. He has student loan debt up to his eyeballs. And that young man, in the midst of our building campaign, sold his $5,000 car and gave all the money why? Because one person's heart had been transformed by the grace of Jesus. The other person was just going through the motions. And in a room this size, we have people in both categories. And I want to say to you, if you're a person who is going through the motions, your heart is not in it, but you are doing religious duty, I want to tell you, that is not Christianity. Outward moral performance, looking good, has nothing to do with biblical Christianity, and it never has, even in the Old Covenant. Having skill without having heart is not to be a person transformed by the grace of God. But I also want to say to you, if you are a person who is coming to church and you just honestly, you feel like, what do I have to offer? I'm not as talented as that person. I'm not as good at my job as that person. I I certainly would never want to be in a prominent role in the church. And, And you feel like I, the only thing that I have to offer is my heart. I want to assure you that's enough. What God wants from us is a broken and contrite heart. He wants us to see his faithfulness and from our heart to say, everything that I have is yours. I I lay it all down to you. And so my question is, for you this morning is where is your heart? Is your heart 
bitter against God? Is your heart soft? Are you pushing him away because of something that's happened in your past? Or are you running back to him believing that he has what's best for you? You see, the people in this room, they can see your external actions and make guesses about what's going on in your heart. But God sees you. He knows. You can't trick him. And so my encouragement to all of us is to repent from the heart, to come running back to him this morning. And I think that one of the evidences of a heart that has run back to God is what you do with your money. Where your treasure is, Jesus said, there your heart will be also. So if your treasure is in your stuff, your heart will be with your stuff. If your treasure is in the kingdom of God, your heart will be with God. And so I'm not asking for your money. I'm asking for your heart. And I'm saying that your money is a very good indicator of where your heart is and will help keep you from being deceived about where you're really at with God. So let's ask ourselves those tough questions this week. So we see the skill of faithfulness, the heart of faithfulness, and last, we see the glory of faithfulness. In, in other words, we see the motivation for faithfulness. Look with me at chapter 40, verses 32 through 38. When they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys... Whenever the cloud was taken up from the, over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Okay, here's what we see in this passage. A Christian gets excited about and finds their significance in the exact opposite way than the world looks for significance. See, what we find joy in as believers is when God is glorified, not when we are glorified. So the world is looking to get their name on a library or to get their statue out in front of a stadium or to get a blue ribbon pinned on their chest. What we are looking for as Christians when our hearts get changed by King Jesus is we're looking for God to be lifted up, for him to be honored. Our joy 
is not in our glory. Our joy is in His glory. So here's what happens for the people of Israel. They give their heart. They give their skills. At least some of them do. And then they build this tabernacle, and they're all standing around. There's this ceremony, and they're waiting for it. Does my contribution make a difference? Should I have given that money? Should I have used my skills? Should I have worked on the Ark of the Covenant and every detail of it to make it perfect? Or have I just been wasting my time? Can you imagine having been somebody who gave your all, who contributed with the belief that your skill and your heart would contribute to the glory of God on earth? And then to your amazement, even though you believed it would happen, you got to see the glory of God fall in the form of a cloud, in the form of fire. I think you would have felt a number of things in that moment. One of the things you would have felt is, I feel way more secure than I would have had I held on to my money. Because you're looking at all the nations around you and you're saying, they might have bigger armies. We've got the creator of the heavens and earth camping on our campground. He's right there. So you feel this sense of security that surpasses the security that money or your own effort could ever bring to you. The, the second thing you would feel is a sense of direction. When, when the cloud got lifted up, the people were to go. When the cloud settled, the people were to stay. And so all the nations around you are kind of waking up every day and saying, where should we go? What should we do? I don't know. They're looking for wisdom in all of these different places. You know exactly where you're supposed to do, go and what you're supposed to do. So you've got security, you've got direction, and thirdly, you've got a sense of divine purpose. Everybody's looking for purpose, then and now. And you know that your purpose is not to live for your own desires and your own dreams. Your purpose is to live for the glory and the honor of God. So you don't, don't you see? That all of the things that you are looking to in your life for security and for purpose and for direction are never going to come through for you. Money is never going to give you the security that you long for. Your job or your hobby is never going to settle on you with a purpose that fulfills you. It doesn't matter how many books you read about how you should organize your life so that everything goes in the right direction, you are never going to have this sense that you are going the right way until you shift your worship from yourself to God. You were made for Him.
This is, I get it, at the same time, devastating news and amazing news. Because you see yourself the same way I see myself. You're both your biggest problem and your greatest treasure. And so letting go of yourself as your greatest treasure is a lifelong process. But let me give you a a story and kind of a quotation as to why you would do something like that. So this um, story comes from this guy named Walter Hooper. You might not have heard of Walter Hooper before. Walter Hooper um, met C.S. Lewis, famous writer, really late in C.S. Lewis's life. And he was a huge fan. He was an English professor at North Carolina. He went over to England to meet C.S. Lewis, and he basically learned that if something was not done about it, that all of C.S. Lewis's books were going to go out of print within a very short time after his death. And it was evident at this time that C.S. Lewis didn't have much time left on the planet. And so Walter Hooper made it his mission, in a sense, to glorify, to honor the legacy of C.S. Lewis by making sure that his books stayed in print. So if you've ever read a book by C.S. Lewis, it is likely owing both to C.S. Lewis and his amazing writing skill, but also to somebody that you've never heard of named Walter Hooper. And so Walter Hooper went and he spoke at a high school that was named after C.S. Lewis. And a girl in the audience asked Walter Hooper this question, what has it been like to live your entire life under the shadow of someone else? And Walter Hooper's response was, it has been wonderful. I have spent my whole life celebrating the person that I admire the most. Here's what I'm inviting you into. For the person that you admire the most, or the person that you're trying to admire the most, to go from being you to being God. Two things will happen. Pressure's off. You can just be a broken person. You don't have to be a celebrity. To be a celebrity means to be celebrated. You don't have to be celebrated. You can just be average. You can just be normal. You can just be you. You don't have to hide anymore and pretend that you're something amazing. You can just know that you're not. And then you can take all of that energy and effort that you've been putting into trying to be celebrated and making yourself look awesome, and instead you can make somebody look awesome who actually is awesome. God. It's not you. And so, you can use all the skill and all the heart that he has given you so that people look at your life and they ask, why are you different? And you can say, because I'm living for the glory of God, for his honor. And so, I am free.
Okay, here's the application as it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. See, the reason that Jesus bought you with his precious blood is not because you're awesome. It's not so that you could look in the mirror and say, I'm so wonderful that the Son of God came and died for me. It's so that you would be able to see that God is awesome. You were bought with a price so that you could glorify God in your body. And God wants you to find your greatest joy in an outward-focused, worshiping life. That's the good life. That's the life of joy. Let's pray. Come before God as he invites us into this life. God, this message is both exciting and devastating to us because we like us. We want to live for us. And there, there just seems to be this clamoring in all of us to be celebrated. We want to be awesome. We want to have high self-esteem. We want to have pride. We call it by many different names. But at the same time, that life is leaving us miserable because we know that we are not worthy. And so would you, by your grace, pry our gaze from ourselves to you? Would you show us your glory? Allow us to see that you are the only one in this room that deserves to be honored. Would you open our eyes to that reality and, and keep us from, from looking in the mirror all the time and allow us to get outside and, and look with the psalmist and see that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. God, you created this world and you created us for your honor. And I pray that we would not be people and that we would not be a church who live for smaller things than that. In Jesus' name, amen.